0: You're listening to Kevin Stock Radio. Hey, it's Kevin, and I want to apologize before I even start. I have someone outside my window chopping up leaves, uh, but hey, this is my time. I can talk about an interesting topic uh, that I get a lot of questions about and that is blood work or lab tests. Okay, so I posted up about this on my blog uh, and after having eaten nothing but meat, you know, meal after meal, uh, month after month for well over a year, I got test results last year in 2018 uh, and I want to talk about uh, blood work results, okay? So, Uh, Let's see where where should we start? Uh, I think the best place to start would be. So, anyways, I wrote a blog post on this uh, a little bit ago, and if you've read the blog post, uh, you don't need to listen to me ramble on because I'm basically going to go through the same thing that I wrote about. But if you prefer to listen, I'm going to kind of cover everything I talked about in that uh, blog post. And so, just so you know, you can turn me off right now, or if you want to reference. The blog post, just know all this information is up on my website at KevinStock.io. Uh But anyways, let's dive into this. And because I'm going through the post, uh, I'm, I'm going through my notes here by, you know, as I go through this. Uh, if I need to pause and, and and read something, that's why. If I sound like a little bit like a robot. Okay, but anyways, I ordered these results in 2018. Like I said... I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get a doctor to prescribe them or anything like that. I ordered them myself, uh, and I posted up on Instagram when I got when the results came in. I got a warning from the faci- facility to go see a doctor immediately. Uh, so I want to talk about my results. You know what's what what uh, what they say. What you know am I you know surprised by them? What et cetera et cetera. Uh, and I'm going to talk about that. But what I think is far more important is what I initially wrote in the blog post uh, is that uh, when I got these results, I thought a lot about how to talk about them in in the most helpful way. And I started by trying to weave together this intricate interplay between my lipid panel and my metabolic panel and my complete blood workup uh, in some feeble attempt to draw a coherent picture of the complex interactions of blood and hormones and lab values, especially in the context of an all-meat diet and my individual lifestyle. <laughs> and when I was doing all this, uh, I realized what I, what I really needed to do, uh, and that was talk about this one most important thing. Uh, and so this one thing is what I'm gonna talk about this whole post. and if I could hammer this home, you know, I think you'll be far better off and I'll consider this chat a success, okay? Because really, this is not about my blood work, nor is it really about understanding the biochemistry and physiology because I understand most people really they, they don't want to have to dive into all the biochem and the physiology. So I don't want to make this about that. Uh, rather, it's kind of about understanding the framework. Of health, uh, to have some semblance of a clue of what your picture of health might actually say. So, while I will talk about my results towards the end here, I want to talk about uh, what I'm gonna what I'm gonna call the canvas and the frame. Uh, and so, this is an analogy that I'm gonna extend throughout this, and hopefully, it makes sense because I think uh, being able to relate your health and your blood work to a canvas of the frame of that canvas, and then the picture on that canvas uh, will be very helpful in seeing the big picture, okay? So let's, let's first hammer out this analogy. If the canvas is your picture of health, I want you to imagine the painting on that canvas is cut up into innumerable puzzle pieces, millions upon millions of pieces, all scattered all over the place, all over the ground. Now, if you can gather all the puzzle pieces, you know, pile them all together, fit them all together, uh, figure out how each little special nook and cranny of each piece fits into each other piece, then you can get your complete picture of health, okay? But obviously, there comes some challenges with this. The first challenge is gathering up millions and millions of puzzle pieces, okay, now, the first important thing that i want to drive home here is getting blood work done gives you some puzzle pieces pieces that you can start to connect but it gives you just a few puzzle pieces in the you know infinite variables of puzzle pieces that exist okay now i want to take this analogy one step deeper uh because your puzzle here That's all. So you had the canvas, you cut it up into puzzle pieces, puzzle pieces are scattered all around. You're trying to gather them. Your blood work makes up a couple of the pieces. Uh, And if we're taking it one step deeper, and that is the puzzle is not an ordinary puzzle. It's tricky. It's dynamic. Okay. And what I mean by this is the puzzle pieces change shape. They change size. And they change continuously, okay? And so, not only uh, are these puzzle pieces changing before your very eyes, as the puzzle, as the individual pieces change, the way they fit together changes, and the overall picture on the canvas would change with it, okay? All the pieces influence all the other pieces. So just imagine one tiny puzzle piece changing shape which then slightly alters all the puzzle pieces and the overall picture uh, to all you know the the whole picture together. So if you start if you start to think about if you zoom out and think about this, you know, you you've got an impossible puzzle to solve on your hands, right? So the only way to extract meaning from this is to understand that puzzle and the canvas and the frame it fits into as a dynamic system, a system, a system that's always changing. Okay. So people, I always see that they, they make this common mistake of they view blood work as their picture of health. It's the whole, as the entire puzzle, when really the blood work gives you just a few pieces of that puzzle. And, and even if you put these few pieces uh, together perfectly, you're getting, uh, you're getting a small glimpse of the whole picture. So as a, um, let me give you a terrible analogy. Let's say on your canvas is a picture of you, okay? And let's say you get your blood work done and you put those little pieces together. Those pieces might give you, you know, a fingernail in as far as the size of the whole picture. Like you're zooming in and seeing just a small part of the whole picture. So basically you have a limited perception uh when really you're thinking you're seeing the whole picture. I hope that makes sense, okay. Uh, so the limited perception that people have of their lab work is the first hurdle that, that we have to, we have to cross over. Okay. Uh, the second thing is the puzzle pieces, i.e. A lab value, they can be an odd shape, meaning it can be a high lab value, like high cholesterol, or it could be a low value, like low cholesterol for good reason or bad reason, <laughs> okay? So that irregular shape could be just the perfect fit for that place in that time, or that irregular shape can be there because there's an actual problem, okay? So this is the important of this next part, and that is what I call the frame, okay? The frame of the canvas. So the key to actually being able to solve the puzzle, which is an impossible, sublet- uh, an impossible puzzle to actually solve, uh, But to get the best chance at solving it, it is to look at all the pieces in context with all the other possible pieces. So, to continue this analogy, that is the frame. Okay, the frame that holds the canvas is context. Context is the key. Without context, we assume your puzzle is the same as my puzzle, and that our and our puzzle pieces should be the exact same size and shape. However. Your puzzle is a certain age and gender. It has certain genetics. It lives in a certain area. It has a certain history of certain experiences, certain diets, and certain habits. No puzzle is the same as your puzzle, and no puzzle is the same as my puzzle. Uh, But for some reason, we assume your puzzle pieces and my puzzle pieces should be the exact same. Okay? So the frame of your canvas, that's the context, it's unique to you the puzzle pieces that fit in your frame shouldn't necessarily be the same, uh, shape and size as my puzzle pieces. Okay. Hope that makes some sense. I hope this analogy (laughs) is making sense. Uh, sometimes things make sense in my head that, that don't make sense when I speak them out loud. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about the indecipherable puzzle. Okay. So if you look at the puzzle pieces from your blood work, uh, and you just look at those. You have an indecipher indecipher indecipherable puzzle, because you have this massive frame which represents the context of your entire life, uh, but you have just a few puzzle pieces. So what you have is you have all this empty space inside the frame uh, that you're trying to say, oh, that's a pic. This picture is a picture of you know your health, but you just have a few pieces in that entire. Uh, frame that you're actually able to see so everything so what the picture actually shows is is often nothing better than uh, than a guess okay however uh... when you add the other pieces like diet like lifestyle like the kind of stress you're under on a daily basis or the lack of stress your age your gender your occupation your health your history including things like your health history medical history your diet history histories of injuries just changes like where you lived if you moved from the east coast to the west coast uh, and you're getting more sunlight or less sunlight like these things matter and these things start to give you a more more full picture if you take them all into context okay if you take them all into account all right let me get a drink i'm talking a million miles an hour okay so this next section one second. Okay. Like I was alluding to puzzle pieces, they change shape and size with the time of day with the season. And unless you're living in a bubble, uh, many of these changes are difficult, if not impossible to control. And moreover, they're, they're very hard to even account for. Okay. So I think one of the big secrets Uh, to actually getting a good glimpse of the whole picture of your health is to acknowledge the fact that your puzzle is ever-changing. So at any one time, you can get a snapshot, uh, but a snapshot the very next day could and likely will look quite different. All right, so let's talk about when to get tested. Uh, Because every day I get a message, oftentimes messages, uh, from people who have done 30 days eating nothing but meat, And then they got their blood work done and then they send me a message because they're worried about some number on the report and they ask me, hey, Kevin, what do you think about these numbers? And they put me in a tough spot for a few reasons. Uh, So often I have to respond like, look, listen, I I can't and I won't give you medical advice. That's how I always have to start, all right? I don't know you, I don't know all that context that we just talked about. Uh, And so the first problem is they they gave me a few puzzle pieces of a gigantic puzzle so basically it's like handing me 5 pieces of a 5 million piece puzzle and saying hey kevin what's the picture on the puzzle say and even if i can you know put all 5 pieces together i'm like yeah those 5 pieces they fit together real nicely i can kind of you know you know guess that's the best way to explain it guess what the whole picture might say but but it's just a guess because all i have is a minuscule part of the whole of the whole picture all right then the second problem with this is getting a test so soon after a major dietary change is like it's really like handing me a puzzle piece that more that can morph in size and shape before my very eyes so i can't tell what fits with what or even if i could i might be able to say oh that seems to fit with that for a second and then the next second it doesn't uh so it's not that it's bad to get tested earlier but it doesn't tell you much and so like if you continue for six months and you get more blood work and then a year later you get more blood work you can start to connect dots you can start to draw a more clear picture but just getting blood work after 30 days is like i don't want to say it's pointless but it's, it's it's closer to pointless than it is meaningful uh in my opinion okay so when should you get blood work Now, for most people, uh, I don't think it makes the sense to get blood work after 30 days or even 90 days after a major dietary change or really a major change in anything. So (laughs) for example, if you're used to sleeping eight hours a day and then you change jobs and you're now uh, staying up all night and then sleeping four hours during the day and you go get a blood test, like that can throw a lot of things off, okay? So what I think is important is to reach what, you know, what I refer to as a homeostatic position. Okay. Re- reach a place with your diet and with your life stay f- lifestyle where things aren't fluctuating, you know, where hormones balance out, your weight balance out, like changes kind of stall out. Uh, because the point of getting blood work is to get meaningful insight, meaningful puzzle pieces. And, Going ongoing testing like if you're getting it every six months every 12 months every 18 months every 24 months uh, Can help connect dots over time. Uh, it can help draw a more complete picture But what tests to get and how often to get them is very very individual So as you'll see with my results There are some markers that I will test more frequently than others uh, And there's others that you know, I have, I have zero concern about so I, I might get them less often uh, so this, this has both to do with the type of test I get and the interval of getting it. It's gonna be different for me than it is for you. Uh, and so this is where it's super important to work with your physician, they can help you. So if you don't wanna go through and understand all the biochemical physiological meaning of, of these things, hopefully you can find a doctor to work with and find a schedule that makes sense when to get blood work, what test to get, how often, uh, et cetera, okay? Because connecting dots over time is is the way to do it, okay? A snapshot in time, a picture uh, is useful in that you can draw information from it, but pictures, snapshots over time, blood work over time is much more useful, okay? All right, so let's talk about where confusion arises. And I think probably from what I've talked about so far, you can start to understand where some uh, complexity arises. Uh, <clears throat> so let's dive into this. So obviously the complex nature of our individual individual puzzles leads to a lot of confusion. And what complicates matters even further is that everyone looks at these puzzles through a different frame, okay? And remember, the frame is context, okay? So let me give you a couple examples. I spent two decades studying nutritional biochemistry, physiology, from the viewpoint which I'll call a bodybuilder. I really cared about building muscle and losing fat. And, you know, and I, I studied nutrition and all the science I learned, I, I funneled through that lens, okay? Uh, so it's fair to say, like, I view nutrition from a different angle than, let's say, an oncologist, okay? An oncologist, someone that that, that treats cancer okay so let's talk about muscle versus metastasis <laughs> Meta- all right so that's that's what i i titled one of the parts in this blog post uh, because i was i was asked recently uh, are carbs needed to maximize muscle gains and it, a simple question there's a very very complex answer to <laughs> but but I, but we can go through looking through the frame of a bodybuilding bodybuilder versus the frame of physician versus versus the frame of maybe a longevity researcher. And we can, we can see how, if we look through these three different frames, how we can say different things are good or bad. Okay. So let's start bodybuilder frame. So to build muscle, there are some very important hormones like insulin, like IGF one, uh, without these, it doesn't matter how hard I'm going to press on that bench press or curl that dumbbell. Uh, muscle size and strength is going to be severely limited or impossible without these hormones, okay? So <laughs> you might be familiar with the common strategy of spiking insulin post-workout by eating some fast-acting fast acting carbohydrates uh, as a strategy that bodybuilders use to basically signal to the body that it's time to grow. Uh, so for example, I used to, before I knew better, uh, post-workout I would often have whey protein and I would combine it with glucose, dextrose, which is... The simplest sugar basically just will instantly spike your blood sugar uh, as well as insulin. Uh, And so the carbs would spike the insulin. The protein goes to work building muscle and repairing. And all this energy signals mTOR, which is, if you don't know what that is, we'll get into it in a little bit, uh, not too deep here. But anyways, mTOR turns on, which stimulates cellular growth by activating IGF-1. If you didn't understand that, just know that you can look at nutrition in a way to maximize these hormones like insulin, like IGF-1, like turning on mTOR, which are all great in the context of building muscle. Okay, but let's look at this through the frame of a physician, Uh, okay? Uh, So if if a healthcare practitioner talks about insulin, talks about IGF-1, talks about mTOR, these things are all bad because a common thread among obese And diabetic patients and so many of our chronic diseases is hyperinsulinemia which is basically chronic high insulin levels insulin is bad news in the context of most people's health okay because most people have poor insulin regulation uh, most people are overweight and so when a doctor looks at these like an oncologist and sees high levels of insulin igf-1 and mTOR like these are bad these things fuel cancer growth okay but if you're a longevity researcher, you might, the story might change a little bit. The researcher might say, well, if you turn on these uh, growth factors that help build more muscle mass, and muscle mass is one of the signals, one of the most consistent things, one of the best predictors of longevity and lowering all-cause mortality, they might say, well, these growth hormones are really good. The oncologist and the physician say they're really bad. The bodybuilder says they're good. Who's right, the bodybuilder, the longevity researcher, or the physician and the oncologist? Well, I mean, the answer is no one is wrong, per se. The context is just vastly different. So uh, if you see IGF-1 insulin mTOR from the vantage point uh, of just one vantage point and you miss the whole picture, you're going to draw a different conclusion based on if you're a bodybuilder or you're an oncologist, okay? I hope that makes sense uh, because the frame really matters, the frame you look for the frame, the frame you look through. Okay. All right. So I need another drink real fast. And then we're going to talk about cholesterol because, uh, my cholesterol was very high. Uh, So if the average doctor looks at my blood work, like they, they will probably be the one that has a heart attack before I do. Uh, because they think like I'm on the verge of a heart attack right along there with them uh, But they'd be missing all the context, okay, they're looking through the wrong frame They're looking through the frame that they're familiar with uh, Okay, so cholesterol, it can be high for good reasons And, and high is quote-unquote high, okay It can be high relative to what people consider normal, okay uh, It can be high for bad reasons too And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a lot more about cholesterol in the future Uh, I'm actually currently working on uh, a series on brain health. It's called Brain Food. uh, And cholesterol plays an important role in in the brain. Uh, But suffice it to say for now, cholesterol can be high for good reasons, it can be high for bad reasons. High for good reasons, high for bad reasons, okay? It could be low for good or bad reasons, (laughs) mostly bad reasons. But anyways, let's, let's talk about cholesterol metabolism a little bit because uh, if you eat a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, uh, the way that energy is distributed throughout the body is very different than someone who eats a lot of, a lot of carbohydrates, okay? And so a doctor would be missing this context uh, or maybe just doesn't understand how this process works. Uh, and then so they'll say your cholesterol is high and you need to be on a statin. Well, they'll be right and wrong. Your cholesterol, they might be right that, hey, your cholesterol is high compared to someone on a standard American diet or just based on the norm that they're, That they expect Uh, but it could be high for good reason and the body could be functioning exactly as it should be so I think you'd be very wrong in suggesting a cholesterol uh, lowering lowering medication like a statin Uh, and I don't want to get into statins right now but I'm I'm, I'm strongly opposed to statins in the 99% of cases okay but I'm going to get to the next challenge, the next obstacle with blood work <clears throat> and just uh, kind of science in general, and that is measuring what matters. Like one of the most challenging obstacles in health science is measuring what matters. Okay, so let's let's go through some examples. So drugs are developed often to let's just say reduce reduce the risk of heart attack uh, or stroke, okay? With the with the, you know, the goal of long-term survival, right? Uh, but these things are hard to measure, right? Because without a long-term clinical outcome, uh, you have to—you w- mean you have to wait till people die, basically, right? So how do you get around this? Uh, well, pharmaceutical companies use what's called a surrogate or a proxy measure, uh, and so proxies are what help get drugs to market as fast as possible. So, for example, there's this drug called uh, Av- Avandia, and it's very good at controlling blood sugar. Okay. And since blood sugar is very easy to measure, uh, it was used as a proxy with with this drug uh, for a diabetic medication. Uh, But the problem is two out of three diabetics suffer heart complications. So one of the main goals of diabetic treatment is to reduce the risk of heart problems. Uh, But what happened with uh, this drug is that although it controlled blood sugar, like it helped lower blood sugar, that proxy, that measurement, got confused with what actually matters, and that's death, okay? And so in this drug's case, it actually increased the risk of heart attack, stroke, and death. So the proxy, uh, which was, you know, the blood sugar, it didn't correlate with the outcome, which, which would be mortality, okay? This happens all the time, like literally all the time. Uh, so cholesterol is just a proxy. Uh, it's a proxy for heart disease, uh, so statins, the, the, these are drugs that are prescribed to lower cholesterol. Like I said, cholesterol is the proxy. There are drugs uh, which we know are very good at lowering cholesterol, but, but these drugs have zero evidence of lowering heart disease or stroke. But they do have evidence of having <laughs> adverse side effects. Uh, so I bring up proxy measurements because you may have a puzzle piece that looks irregular okay it might be high it might be low like my cholesterol it looks irregular uh, but if this is a proxy uh, and it isn't seen through the right frame it can cause you to worry uh, but it's important to recognize that if the puzzle piece is used as a proxy to predict the whole picture it could just be wrong okay so i, I guess what i'm trying to say is we're using this is a very this is very much like i was saying uh, like the, if all you can see is the fingernail on the picture, it's okay. So on your canvas is a picture is a picture of your body. Let's just say a, a drawing of your body, and this puzzle piece is, shows you your fingernail. A proxy is basically saying, well, if your fingernail looks like this, your whole picture looks like this, and so you're using a, the fingernail to predict the entire picture. Uh, and often the fingernail is not a good representation of the whole picture. Okay. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. It makes sense in my head. Uh, anyways, let's go on uh, and talk about what is blood work, and then we'll go into my results. Okay. So, what I think is a helpful way to to view blood work is to view your blood as a delivery system. Okay, it, it delivers oxygen and nutrients, and it's also a disposal system. Okay, it, it disposes of waste products. So certain organs are stops along this system uh, for processing before delivery or dumping, like the liver, the kidneys, the spleen, the lungs, okay? So blood work is a snapshot in time to get an idea of how this system is working, okay? And there are thousands of tests you can get, which means there are thousands of puzzle pieces you can gather. Uh, so I ordered the you know, three most common panels. I ordered a lipid panel, a metabolic panel, and a complete blood count. Uh, I also ordered a few less common tests, Uh, which I think should be far more common, like insulin and CRP. I got a a high sensitivity CRP as well. Insulin and and CRP are not commonly ordered, uh, but man, I'll talk about these in a minute. But like, if you're getting blood work, I highly recommend those. Okay, so where are we going with this? Okay, so (laughs) this is just because I ordered these, this does not mean this is necessarily what you should get. For example, if I had signs and symptoms that pointed to metabolic syndrome, I would get my fasted blood sugar, I would get a glucose tolerance test, I'd get a hemo- I'd get my hemoglobin a- A1C, I'd get fasted insulin, and I would get all these blood sugar tests basically to see how they work together so I can get the most complete picture that I can of how— uh, insulin and sugar and my body is, 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 is using these. Okay. If you get just one, you get an idea. If you get two, you get a better idea. If you get three, four, et cetera, you get a better, you get a more complete picture. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if I had signs of, let's say cardiovascular disease, I would get a fractionated lipid panel. Now this is, that's a much more in depth look at the lipids. It's more expensive. So I did not get a fractionated one. I really don't have any concern about cardiovascular disease, or I would have gotten one. I considered spending more money just to explain the intricacies of it uh, and I might do that in the future, but let's just go into my results and then we'll go from there. Now, my results, I, I posted them all up on 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 the blog post. So, you can click and you can open up the test if you want to see all the numbers and all that. Uh, <clears throat> but let's start with the lipid panel. Now, the lipid panel measures two types of fat, okay? You got cholesterol and you got triglycerides. Now, the first thing that will jump out when you look at my blood work is that my cholesterol is, is quite high. And frankly, I am perfectly happy with it. My HDL is very high. My triglycerides are low. They're just fine. The ratio is what I really care about uh, of HDL to triglycerides. And something that I think more people need to look at is remnant cholesterol. I have very low remnant cholesterol. And so based on this, my LDL is of absolutely no concern to me. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm happy that my brain and my body are getting all the cholesterol they need. Uh, And to me, it's just further evidence that I am a fat burner, which isn't too surprising because I eat basically zero carbohydrates and I've eaten nothing but meat for a very long time. And I'm quite lean. I don't have much. I don't, I don't have high body fat, probably single digit body fat. uh, And I train daily. So all these things, I, you know, I take into account in my frame of reference when I look at my lipid panel panel okay uh, metabolic panel now this gives us a look at uh, the processes processes in the body that convert uh, and use energy and so you get information about minerals uh, things that can impact uh, uh, things like water balance blood acidity muscular function you know calcium chloride magnesium phosphorus potassium sodium you know i get this i get information about organ function like the liver and kidneys uh you know i because you get values like your bilirubin and album albumin uh, a lot of puzzle pieces here okay and to the casual observer i do have a couple irregular puzzle pieces here so if you look at my blood urea nitrogen bun uh, as well as my uh, alanine amino transferase so that's the alt so the bun and the alt they are high. They're outside the normal liver, uh, outside the normal, uh, range. And so people might say, oh, my liver and kidneys are failing. But honestly, I, I expected these two values to be high because in the context of a high protein diet, high meaning higher than, you know, the standard American diet, the diet that most doctors and, and, you know, uh, baselines are gauged off of, uh, based on a high, high protein diet, Uh, and my daily workouts, uh, bun is often elevated due to the high rate of protein metabolism and muscle turnover. People fear metabolic acidosis, but I mean, if you just look at my metabolic panel, there's zero evidence of this whatsoever. So no, I'm not worried about metabolic acidosis. Uh, The same goes for ALT. Uh, Elevated liver enzymes are very common in people who work out hard on a regular basis. Uh, And So I actually found some interesting research on, on ALT. It tends to be elevated for over seven, seven to more days post-workout. And I work out every day. I mean, I could have taken uh, a week or two off and then got blood test. I mean, who are we kidding? I probably couldn't do that, but you know, I could have done that, but I, I, all I see is more problems if you do that because you're altering your regular routine in order to try and get blood results to fit into some standardized framework i just think it's better like look stick with your routine stick with the foods you eat and see what the blood work says uh i could go on a massive tangent here about sleep testing but i think i'm going to spare you uh but for for you know sleep testing often fails for this exact same reason i'll just give a, a highlight when people go in for a sleep test uh to you know to see if they have sleep apnea generally obstructive sleep apnea uh <laughs> a lot of times the sleep test facility will give them like a sleep, you know, some ambient to help them go to sleep, but they don't normally sleep with ambient. Uh, and so what you get is you get data reflecting a night's sleep. That's not a typical night's sleep. And I'm like, what is, what is the point of that? So, you know, when it comes to sleep testing, if someone drinks five beers before they go to bed every night, like if you want the t- sleep test to be meaningful, you should drink five beers b- before you go to sleep that night to see like what your real night's sleep is like, Okay, that's the end of that tangent. Uh, but, but there's there's real, test, there's real problems with running tests, altering your life and then running a test. I'm like, that, that, a lot of times you get data that is not reflective of, I'll just say, quote unquote, real life. All right, let's get back to uh, the metabolic panel and talk about insulin, okay? Uh, a fasted insulin test is one of the simplest, most affordable, most accurate tests to evaluate metabolic health. Hyperinsulinemia, it underlies, like I said, so many of our modern chronic diseases, everything from heart disease to cancer to dementia, really the the biggest killers. Uh, uh, and so blood glucose, HbA1c, they're valuable. Uh, but fasting insulin can detect problems before insulin resistance, before prediabetes and diabetes kicks in, okay? So this is just one test I think, like, people need to be getting this and they're not. Uh, my insulin was 2.3, which is extraordinarily low. Uh, (laughs) for some perspective, anything below two is, is below the detectable limit. Uh, so I have the opposite of insulin resistance. I am very, very insulin sensitive. Uh, there's not agreement on what the ideal insulin level is. There's a study out of Arizona that found that women with a fasting insulin of 8, that's 8.0, they had twice the risk of prediabetes as those with 5. There's some research out of the University of Washington that showed that the average insulin level in the U.S. is uh, 8.8 for men and 8.4 for women. And based on our metabolic health, uh, this is just way, way, way too high. So from the research I've done, I, I would say you want your insulin between two and five. Uh, that would be an ideal range. Uh, and if you're getting blood work done, ask your doctor if you can include this test. Okay. That's, it's, it's an important one. And then I would also say this next one as well, which is HSCRP. That's high sensitivity C reactive protein. Okay. So I ordered this test, uh, And it's not one of the normal ones that are ordered, like I mentioned, uh, but I think it's one that you should consider. Uh, Now, CRP is a protein that the liver makes when there is inflammation, okay? So this is a test that's used to evaluate inflammation, uh, and it's often used as a means to evaluate the risk of heart disease. So you want your HSCRP to be below 1, okay? Okay. Now CRP is traditionally measured down to concentrations of three to five milligrams per liter, uh, but luckily we have high sensitivity CRP, which is the one you want, uh, and that can detect even lower grade inflammation down to 0.2, 0.2 milligrams per liter. So my CRP was so low that it was it was be, it was below 0.2; it was beyond detection, uh, which is a good sign that I don't have any kind of chronic systemic inflammatory problem uh, and I'm probably quite low risk for cardiovascular disease. Uh, And this brings up a good point. Like people say meat's inflammatory, blah, blah, blah. Like literally all I've done is eat meat. And if meat was inflammatory, uh, even if it caused a little bit of chronic inflammatory, like low-grade chronic inflammatory, uh, like from an autoimmune response, like it would have elevated my CRP. And it didn't. Okay. So lastly, I think it's important to note that CRP can be elevated for many inflammatory diseases, cancers, infections. Uh, But, you know, if it's elevated, it's an important puzzle piece to investigate. And that's why I think it's a good test. Uh, I like it. Okay. Complete blood count is the next one. The third thing we're going to look at here. Now, the, the, the CBC, it gives you a look into the health of your blood cells, the red blood cells, the white blood cells, and the platelets, okay? You can see the quantity, the size, the volume, basically the broad screening tool to detect possible infections, allergies, diseases like uh, anemia and, and, and leukemia, okay? So my blood test is all pretty boring. Uh, all the values sit within the normal range. So I'm I'm not gonna dive into anything too specific here regarding my results, okay? Uh, But I do wanna talk about some values of note in the context of a meat only diet or a meat-based diet, uh, I should say. And I I like the word meat-based diet better than carnivore diet. And I'm not gonna go into the distinguishing between those. Uh, I just like meat-based diet. Uh, This is my preferred terminology. Okay, so let's talk about a couple values of special note as related to a carnivore diet or a meat-based diet. Okay, homocysteine. On a carnivore diet or a meat-based diet, people fear insufficient folate. But, like, if I were deficient in uh, homocysteine, or I mean, I'm sorry, if I were deficient in uh, folate, my homocysteine would likely be high, and it's right there in the normal range. Okay. Uh, people also have concerns about the high purine levels in meat and it attributing to gout and so if you look at my uric acid it's it's in the normal range not an issue okay next thing is uh calcium so i eat little to no dairy i think most people do better if they really reduce eliminate dairy maybe besides some butter uh to grease the pan uh just my experience (laughs) as an aside Uh, but anyways my calcium if you look at it uh, it's in the it's in the high to normal range and like i someone looked at like what i eat they'd be like oh you're you're going to be deficient in calcium you're going to be leaching calcium out of your bones because of all the acidity of the meat okay like if that were the case my calcium wouldn't be in the high end of the normal range okay so important thing to note there uh testosterone I bring this up because <laughs> when I announced that I got my blood work done, this was the number one question that all the men asked me they're like, hey what's your testosterone uh mine was nine hundred and fifteen nanograms per deciliter total uh testosterone hundred and one point eight free testosterone, which are all you know it's high normal my estrogens were low normal thyroid uh t s h was normal blood sugar okay, special note on blood sugar. <clears throat> So this is very interesting. My glucose uh, was 89, which is actually like, if you think about it, you'd be like, that's that's kind of high. I mean, it's not like it's not pre-diabetic or anything like that, but it's 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 on the higher end for someone that's not eating any carbohydrates. Uh, so I mean, that that might pique most people's curiosity. Be like, why is the glucose high, especially when my insulin is 2.3? which is very low, very, very low. My HbA1c was 4.9. So what explains that glucose? And so although 89 falls within the quote-unquote normal range uh, and that I'm I'm not diabetic based on those other values, uh, that higher blood glu- glucose might be higher than, you know, like I said, might, might be anticipated given the data. But I bring this up because it's not uncommon among low-carb I'll call them athletes but people that you know train Uh, and there's this theory called the adaptive glucose sparing theory that the body preferentially uses fat for energy uh, and resists the use of glucose and saves it for certain tissues like the brain and the red blood cells like that need glucose. Okay, so just something to keep in mind if your blood glucose is a little bit high, uh, but you know your insulin is low your HbA1c is fine something to keep in mind. Okay. Now I'm saving some of the most interesting stuff for last, and that is uh, a couple irregular puzzle pieces. So when I got my blood work results back, there were two puzzle pieces, i.e., lab values, uh, that did not make immediate sense to me, uh, and it kind of puzzled me actually. So this gives me a good opportunity to explain how my, you know, how I think about irregular puzzle pieces. So. The first one I want to talk about is DHEA sulfate, okay? So mine was a bit low. If it wasn't super low, it was just outside the lower limit of normal. Uh, but <laughs> it's this This is pr- particularly curious because DHEA is a precursor of testosterone and my testosterone was quite high. Uh, so DHEA is produced by the adrenals uh, and it does tend to be higher in young male athletes, uh, but like many hormones, dare I say all hormones, it has numerous roles. Okay. It also tends to be high in people with insulin resistance and, and chronic high stress. So it's, it's obviously influenced by a myriad of factors. Uh, And so it's hard to pinpoint, you know, why might it be low? Why might it be high? But anyways, let's talk about testing DHEA. So doctors generally order DHEA tests because they're worried it's too high, not because they think it's too low. Like DHEA, DHEA can be high for numerous reasons, like stress. Uh, so in stressful situations, adrenals release cortisol and DHEA, and so for example, it's often elevated in people that suffer from uh, PTSD. So generally, uh, the test is not ordered for suspicion of low levels. Uh, unless the doctor suspect adrenal insufficiency, uh, which is quite rare, uh, I, I mentioned this because there's this recent trend of testing or the support for testing of adrenal fatigue. And you might've heard this word adrenal fatigue before. And you know, if you read the research, there's actually no evidence that adrenal fatigue is actually a thing. Uh, to me, it makes sense that there are milder, there, there could be milder forms of adrenal insufficiency. Uh, That could explain many symptoms that we face uh, as a result of our high-stress modern lives. Uh, But just FYI, medical literature doesn't support it at this time. Anyways, searching for low levels of androgens like DHEA in healthy people without specific symptoms is not the standard care, okay? It's not the standard care. Uh, DHEA insufficiency, uh, (laughs) so symptoms of low dhea are things like poor body composition you know storing fat you have low muscle you have a low libido you get fatigued easy depressed weak difficulty in waking up in the morning a weakened immune system these are things that are signs of low dhea Uh, now i simply just don't have any clinical symptoms that are characterized by dhea insufficiency Uh, so i I bring this up because the clinical expression of a hormone of a, a hormone function is very important like like if you don't consider how you're actually doing how you actually look how you feel how you perform then then you're missing a a very large part of the puzzle okay okay so let's get to the point why is my dhea low right uh well i have a hunch that it's low for similar reasons that my insulin is low and this is not a perfect analogy but it's it's this it's it's to help you get the gist of it, okay? So, in the case of my insulin, because my insulin receptors are so sensitive, I don't need much insulin in order for it to optimally perform its functions, okay? So, if you think about the contrast of that, someone that has insulin resistance, they need a lot of insulin in order to maintain their homeostatic blood glucose, i.e., that's someone with diabetes. Uh, So, my guess is I have a hypersensitivity to DHEA, quote-unquote hypersensitivity, uh, because... Usually, DHEA hypersensitivity is understood in the context of women who have high—I'm sorry—who have normal DHEA lab values, but experience symptoms that are associated with high levels of DHEA. Things like weight gain, hair loss, uh, low energy, acne, irritability, infertility. They had a deepening of the voice. You know, stress, PCOS. These are things that are associated with high DHEA. So if you have an imbalance between the amount of DHEA and the receptor sensitivity, uh, that's where you can get DHEA hypersensitivity, okay? In a balanced scenario, low, quote unquote, low DHEA, would correspond to, quote unquote, high receptor sensitivity. And so this is my best guess as to why my DHEA is low. It's just like my insulin is low, I have high receptor sensitivity, okay? Let's let's see. So let's just a a little bit more about receptor sensitivity, hormone receptor sensitivity. Like I think proper diet, exercise, sleep, general health. We see efficient use of hormones. We you don't have the overproduction of hormones because you have healthy sensitive receptors. Okay, insulin's a good example. My fasting insulin is by some accounts lower than the lower limit. Uh, so I, I have extreme insulin sensitivity. I just don't need much insulin to keep healthy blood sugar and promote healthy growth, okay? The other hormone receptors like thyroid and leptin, they can behave much of the same way, where your organs don't have to keep pumping out loads of hormone to function. They're efficient at what they do. Um, so I think we should be cautious of, you know, a reactionary doctor if they have an asymptomatic patient And let's just say they have low T3 and they want to put them on Synthroid. Like to me, you got to look deeper. And so I think hopefully most doctors, they try and see through the correct frame and make sense of the puzzle pieces. Okay. So that's it for DHEA. Let's go to the other irregular puzzle piece. And this this is one of an ongoing investigation, I'll say. And that is ferritin. Okay. So my ferritin was quite high. Uh, And ferritin is a measure of iron storage. And so an easy explanation of high ferritin would go something like this. Well, I've been eating a whole lot of meat, which has a lot of iron. So, duh, my iron stores are high. Uh, But this explanation would be missing a key element. Okay, so let's go through this. Uh, The liver produces a hormone called hepcidin. Uh, And hepcidin monitors iron levels, and it basically tells intestinal cells how much to absorb. So on average, we lose one to two milligrams of iron every day. And not surprisingly, we tend to absorb about one to two milligrams of iron every day. Now, there are really two main causes of high ferritin levels. And one is absorbing more than normal, and something called hereditary hemochromatosis, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, the second reason is uh, as a reactionary response to inflammation, such as metabolic syndrome, ob- obesity and diabetes, liver disease, daily alcohol consumption, infections, cancers like uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma and, le- and leukemia, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, things like that, uh, where there is a reactionary response to inflammation that that results in high high ferritin. Okay. So this second reason, reactionary inflammation, uh, this explains high ferritin in over 90% of the cases. Now, the problem is, and the reason this is an ongoing investigation for me is, the most typical explanations for high ferritin just don't seem to apply to me. I don't have metabolic syndrome. You can just take a look at my metabolic panel. I am not chronically inflamed. I mean, you can look at my, my, my HSCRP. I don't drink alcohol, I don't have any infections like if you look at my complete blood count. Uh and I don't seem to have any cancers or autoimmune diseases. So the, the so then the next the next logical thing is like, well, maybe you have hereditary hemochromatosis. So, hereditary he- hemochromatosis, this is a genetic change uh that affects the synthesis or the activity of hepcidin, okay? And this can result in an increase in intestinal absorption of iron and thus Potential iron overload. So the incidence of hereditary hemochromatosis—it's also known as HH, which I'll just keep, which I'll just say HH to save that tongue twister. Uh, but the incidence of HH is about one in two hundred. So while it's unlikely, it's not something I could just rule out. And unfortunately, I don't have any prior blood work with ferritin levels, so I don't know my history, like if it's always been high, and maybe it's decreased lately or maybe it was low and it's gone up. Uh, and on top of this like it doesn't run in my family at least as far as everyone I asked no one I know has HH. Uh, the opposite is seen like uh, anemia, which is an iron deficiency. in fact it's the most common mineral deficiency in the world uh, is more common in my family. So so th- so it's a little bit of a mystery right? Uh, now let's let's unpack this a little bit more uh while the ferritin was high uh it wasn't what i would say in the hereditary hemochromatosis high range which would be over a thousand mine was in the upper 500s somewhere okay which is high Uh, don't get me wrong upper 500s is considered high based compared to normal uh but over a thousand is what you would i'll say generally see with someone with hereditary hemochromatosis okay so what else let's see are there any other possible explanations well vitamin C uh, can increase iron absorption. Funny thing is on a meat only diet and without supplementing vitamin C, this isn't a likely suspect. So if I don't have hereditary hemochromatosis, I don't have reactionary inflammation, it turns out we really don't know the cause of mild elevations in ferritin according to the latest research, okay? So this leaves me in an interesting situation. Like I have this irregular puzzle piece with no immediate explanation. So what do I do and how do I think about this? Well, this is what I'm gonna do. I will likely get another iron panel. This time I'll include something called a TIBC, which is the total iron binding capacity. Uh, This way I can recheck ferritin as well as as see if the TIBC Uh, see if it's greater or less than 45%, which is an indication of hereditary hemochromatosis. So basically, if TIBC is greater than 45%, then I would get a genetic test to rule out hereditary hemocrosis or to confirm it. Uh, But if it's less than 45% and the ferritin is still around where it is, uh, I'll likely just monitor over time because this is like, according to the current research recommendations, uh, it's it's recommended observation below 1,000 nanograms per, m- per milliliter is basically standard procedure in this case. Uh, that said, if my ferritin elevated towards or above 1,000 nanograms per milliliter, I would definitely get further testing. I'd definitely get a genetic testing uh, to see if I have hereditary hemochromatosis uh, or what could possibly explain that, okay, because, you know, high ferritin, Depending on the researcher reading, you know it's associated. It's associated with some some disease for sure. Uh, so it's not something I just want to just poo poo. Okay, so I tell you this for a couple reasons, <clears throat> basically to show you my train of thought, uh, which is, uh, it's a, basically it's a process of understanding and putting puzzle pieces together. Okay, what it's not, it's not just some reactionary response to an elevated value. And immediately seeking out medication treatment or jumping to any conclusions, okay uh, and so at the time of this right now, I haven't gotten this uh, these ferritin tests yet yet uh, but when I do, I will update you uh, via my newsletter and hopefully you're getting that like if you're get, if you're not if you're not getting if you're getting anything just make sure you sign up to the newsletter. I send it out once a week. it's the best stuff that I got and then that way you don't have to do anything else you make sure you get the best info. okay anyways um there is two uh, i I wanted to i wanted to mention one other thing here further possibilities okay so current science doesn't have any definitive answers as to why ferritin is elevated in the absence of you know a reactionary inflammatory response or a genetic condition but to me uh there's two scenarios i like to keep in mind scenario one the test could be inaccurate (laughs) okay so let me tell you i have a degree in chemistry and i did four years uh of quantitative analysis research undergraduate research and i used something called graphite furnace atomic absorption spectroscopy which is also a mouthful Uh, and i basically use this to measure lead contamination in fish Uh, and i'm telling you this because i can tell you no matter how much care is taken how good the instrumentation is no test is immune from air, okay? So if something is outside the normal or outside the expected and you just can't explain it, sometimes air can explain it. And that's what the importance of retesting, okay? So scenario two is uh, maybe, just maybe, I'm Going on, I'm going out on a limb here, but maybe these higher iron storages are good, even necessary for something, that i just don't know something that i just don't understand maybe these elevated levels of ferritin or are some protective measure or uh, like basically what i'm saying is maybe this elevated level kind of like the elevated cholesterol is a good thing okay and i actually think you know call me a quack whatever but i think this is the most likely scenario so i do everything i can to understand the bit, the puzzle pieces. Okay. Understand how they fit together. I ask why I try and get to the bottom of quote unquote, irregular puzzle pieces, these odd shapes and sizes, these high and low values. Uh, but I'll tell you what my body I know is smarter than I am. Uh, and so many people with that would have my high ferritin levels, they would rush to go get a phlebotomy, uh, But my question is, like, what if the ferritin is high for good reason? Like, what if my body knows something that I don't? The last thing I want to do is go and try and manipulate a number for the number's sake, okay? So I, I believe this is what's so often done with cholesterol. Like, we think we're smarter than the body, and so we try and manipulate numbers. We try and manipulate cholesterol with drugs just to get a number that we think is good, when really that cholesterol is could be high for a good reason or it could be high for a bad reason but just treating that quote that proxy that that surrogate measurement is may not be getting to the root cause likely isn't getting to the root cause and so while you're quote-unquote fixing a number you're actually not fixing anything the root problem is still there okay i don't know i hope that makes sense because i actually strongly believe that Uh, so I think just masking underlying reason and just manipulating numbers with drugs is a bad strategy, and I think it's something that we do and see in medicine a lot, and it's just something to be aware of. Okay, now I want to conclude uh, here real soon. I, I've been rambling on like I'm, my throat is getting tired. Hopefully, this has been valuable, uh, but I want to I want to conclude on the difference between understanding versus justifying. There is a big difference between understanding the puzzle pieces in the big picture frame and trying to justify puzzle pieces that just don't look good okay so for example I can understand why my cholesterol is high why my bun and why my bun and alt are high okay I not only understand but I expected this in the context of my life it makes sense and how it fits in with the other pieces of my puzzle but this is not to say that if I see puzzle pieces outside of normal shapes and sizes to just justify them with theories okay i think it justifies just the opposite you know it justifies digging in further evaluating you know finding more puzzle pieces to see if it fits or if there might be a problem okay so this is exactly what i did it's what i'm doing with my ferritin and my dhea numbers i'm digging into possible reasons i'm going to monitor and test over time time i'm going to keep an eye out for other issues and explanations and if it comes to it, I'm going to seek out more informed experts and opinions, uh, because I by no means am the expert when it comes to ferritin or DHEA. I mean, there's people that spent their lives studying these hormones, uh, and it would be ignorant of me to just not consult with the, with, with other experts, uh, when called for. Okay. So I hope I drove the one thing home, uh, that lab values are just a a few pieces of a very complex puzzle uh, that needs to be put together in the right frame, okay? And since you're listening to me ramble on, you're probably like me where you self-educate, you'll try putting your puzzle pieces together and you try and make sense uh, of, of your context, of your frame. But please, please, please don't take this to mean doing it alone, okay? work with your doctor. Like that is a very, very, very valuable resource. Okay. Someone that has lots of education, uh, and it take then, you know, they, they doctors, they, they get lots and lots of schooling. They, they cost a lot of money They go into a lot of debt. And, you know, while sometimes we see, uh, I'll say dogma passed down in echo chambers. Uh, I, I think we can't let that Uh, not let us see the good that doctors do okay so work with your doctor uh, and I hope as you know this is not medical advice rather this is me giving advice to get medical advice to work with your doctor to work with specialists and whoever you need to so you can make the most informed decisions regarding your health okay I want to thank you for listening to me ramble on about this I hope I got the big picture issue uh and it made sense and i drove that that that, ish, that issue home uh and like i said for for future updates about about my re- test results my ongoing uh test i you know i'll keep them public i don't i don't care if, if people know my numbers and whatnot uh and if you want to get them just make sure you're on my newsletter email list you can get that you can get on there at kevinstock Io. Thanks again for listening with you and I will talk to you next time. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Keep the radio going. Dr. Kevin stock has more coming your way for exclusive content. Visit www.kevinstock.io.